0: The Numinous Podcast, with Carmen Spaniola.
1: Hi there and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversation with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Juliana Abalchok. Juliana is completing her studies in forensic anthropology and has a varied and interesting spiritual background that I'm so excited to share and explore together today. I've also learned a tremendous amount from Juliana about decolonization and the fight for indigenous rights, and I hope this show will inspire not only your curiosity and concern about those issues, but more importantly, action. I spoke with Juliana online. She was at home in Austin, Texas. So Juliana, what identities do you lead with?
2: Oh, um, I would say primarily Mesoamerican. Um, My great grandfather on on my dad's side is Maya. And on my father's side, we're also Chiricahua Apache. But that's been a little bit harder for me to substantiate. So I'm a little reticent to kind of, you know, identify with that too much because I can't necessarily prove it, although I am trying to track that down. And on my mother's side, her grandfather is um, an, an indigenous man from Kowila, so Coiltican, which their, 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 their um, territory was the northeast part of mexico up into around central texas
1: wow that is fascinating so here where i am on the west coast it's pretty common for people to introduce themselves and say like hi i'm um you know Songhees nation lakuan territory or i'm from treaty three or or i'll say i'm fifth generation settler of scotch descent but this is the first time i've ever had anyone say i'm mesoamerican
2: well we're so close to mexico and then Texas has an extremely complex and unique history for indigenous people. Mm -hmm. We are a gigantic landmass. You can look at us on a map and see how big we are. And I believe there are only maybe five federally recognized tribes in Texas. And I think only one of them may be uh, actually indigenous to this region. And the rest were relocated from the east. Right. So there were many, many, many tribes here. That's documented well by the Spanish, and um, some of the er early, you know, American settlers. But you know, like any other part of Turtle Island, there's this idea of terra nullis. You know, well, nobody was using the land, and so therefore Mm. it was virtually empty. And then there was enslavement, and then there was disease, which decimated populations. But um, you know, and then the complex history of Texas you know, with it being a colony of Mexico, and then its own country, which maybe some Canadians don't know.
1: I did um, not know that.
2: Texas was for a short while its own country. And then it became annexed by the US and part of the US before the Civil War. And then it was on, on the side, of it was on the Confederacy side during the Civil War. So there was a Um, There's actually a theme park. There used to be one called Six Flags Over Texas, and there were literally six nations Uh. who claimed ownership over Texas at one point in time over another, starting with the Spanish. Wow. Spain, Mexico, the U.S., you know, just like, it was just like one after another. So it's had a really strange history, but for as large as the state is, indigenous people are really invisible here. and. Um, that was because we were legislated out. Like, like the state of Virginia, at some point in time, um, they decided that Native people could no longer exist here. So you were either Black or you were White. Mm-hmm. And you see this in the census where all of a sudden people pop up as being White or mulatto, which is mixed race, mm-hmm. or Black. And so they pretty much erased people of Indigenous ancestry.
1: Wow, so that must make it really difficult when you're trying to um, trace your lineage. And It makes and, it very difficult, yes. I bet. Okay, so you are, is this how you became interested in archaeology, <laughs> forensic archaeology? You're graduating soon with a degree in forensic archaeology. Is this, is this related somehow?
2: It is related, but sideways, because I originally had a focus in classic classic Maya anthropology, and that's where the majority of my expertise, expertise lies, is in the classic period Maya, which is about from 200 to 900 CE, common era, or AD, however people like to say that. Um, so that was my focus, and I actually, part of the reason I moved back to Austin is because Austin is kind of like this hub of Maya studies hmm. at the University of Texas, which I did not go to after all, but I have a lot of friends who are Mayanists, as we call ourselves, and the Maya Meetings, which is the annual conference that's been going on for like, I think, 30-something years Um takes place here. So you have all the Maya experts or all the people interested in Maya studies who convene here once a year and they get together for like five days and they just nerd out (laughs) about everything Maya. So this was the place to be if you wanted to actually know what the current research was. And they also taught classes in hieroglyphs. So I came out here to learn how to read the hieroglyphs. And this is around the time where the 2012 hysteria was really ramping up which has a lot of new age right. dogma attached to it. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be able to read the hieroglyphs for myself and know what the ancestors said. So What did I'm not, they say? Can you tell me? Uh, they said a lot of things. It just kind of depends on what you're looking at. But mm. the monument that generated a whole lot of the hysteria, it's, a, it's, it's only... It's the, it's the Tortuga Monument. I believe it's Monument 6. And it was found at a site that's been kind of destroyed so they could put a cement factory in place. But, you know. <laughs> yeah. But, so there was this partial monument. We only have part of it. And it talks about the end of the 13 Bakhtun, which occurred in December of 2012. And what they believed was going to happen at that particular juncture in time. And somehow... A lot of people who knew nothing about the Maya and who couldn't read hieroglyphs superimposed their own beliefs on what the Maya allegedly said. And that's where you got the whole end of the world hysteria, which was completely ridiculous. Because <laughs> if you actually know what Tortuguero 6 says, it was nothing about the end of the world. It was just the end of a specific cycle of time. And then a new cycle of time begins. The 14th Baktum began. But people got the date wrong and they also got the, the the significance of that date wrong too so it was really interesting because coming from the festival culture on the west coast i was aware of the incredible amount of cultural appropriation that goes on among that particular subculture and i went to mexico with the purpose of observing what people were going to be doing in places like Chiapas and the Yucatan during the 2012, you know, thing that was going on there. And it was a really horrifying and illuminating experience at the same time. It's like, it was the best of times, it was the worst (laughs) of times. I had a really great experience spiritually, and I saw a lot of egregious, awful, inexcusable behavior by white people. Mm -hmm. So it was a... (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I feel I'm, my heart that is was cringing. A long way. That was a long way to forensic <laughs> anthropology, so I didn't end up going to UT. I ended up going to Texas State because I'm interested in I'm interested in the way archaeology is done and the way that indigenous people are involved or not involved in it. And I wanted to know what was actually taking place and know the science behind it. So the university I attend, Texas State University. Has the premier forensic facility, I believe, in the world. It's state of the art. We've had people come through from other universities who said it's better than JPAC, which is the facility, the military facility in Hawaii where POWs and MIAs are processed at. Hmm. So our facility is like, we have a body farm and everything. Um, and all of my professors are from University of Tennessee, which used to be the premier institution mm-hmm. for forensic anthropology in the united states so that 's where I study. I have worked in the lab. Um, I did some work um, volunteer work on a uh, thing called project I- Operation ID, which is where several universities are collaborating. They go to the border, they excavate the bodies of migrants who die in the desert, who are thrown into mass graves. They excavate the bodies, and depending on the amount of decomposition, they divvy up the bodies, and then we try to identify who these people might have been. We come up with a biological profile, and then that is entered into a database where people who who have got loved ones who have come up missing, can look for their their loved ones in the database to see if anything matches up with the descriptions of the remains that we have at each institution.
1: Oh my God. Okay. I, I feel overwhelmed. Uh, like my mind is like, what the fuck? Why are there mass graves? What the hell? Uh, this is like taking a detour in my head. So I have a, I have so many questions. Um, <laughs> uh, okay. So can you tell, ta- I just want to back up a little bit. So you're yeah. doing forens- forensic anthropology. What does that mean exactly?
2: Forensic anthropology is, is kind of like the sister discipline to bioanthropology, where um, bioanthropologists or bioarchaeologists, as they're sometimes called, they look at historical remains. So people who might have lived hundreds or even thousands of years ago. When you're a forensic anthropologist, you're looking at the remains of people who may have died in the last 50 years and would be considered a medical legal case. (gasps) Okay. This makes so much more sense. Okay. So so when the police um, or when people find human remains and then the police get on there that that is considered a medical legal case we don't know at that moment in time when the remains are found if the person died accidentally was a murder victim you know something happened so until it is substantiated who that person is and how they died it's always almost considered a possible homicide until you figure out who that person was and you know see if they match up to you know um Forensic anthropologists will compile a what's called a biological profile that is sex and stature and age and race. Hmm. And I know a lot of people have a lot of trouble with the idea that there are racial differences, but physiologically there are racial differences. And that's nothing to do with intellectual superiority or things like that. It has to do with the genetic variation that took place over millennia in specific regions of the world that were responses to environmental or cultural pressures.
1: Okay. Okay. So why are there mass
2: graves of immigrants? Um, A lot of people who are fleeing cartel violence in Mexico and Central America are poor people and they often make the journey on foot or they take a train that runs from central to Northern Mexico called um, the beast is what it's called, um, but in Spanish. So they hop on this train and they ride the top of it and they try and get as, as, as close to to Northern Mexico as they possibly can. And then at that point there are people called coyotes who ferry them across the border and they generally have to cross that either the Sonoran or the Chihuahuan desert. And those places are just really, large swaths of land and they take several days to cross on foot. And they're really untenable conditions, except maybe during the winter time of the year. Mm-hmm. So many people die in, in the dead. You know, if you get injured, if you get bitten by a snake,
1: mm-hmm.
2: your group cannot stay with you because time is of the essence and people have to keep moving. Mm-hmm. But people will get left behind if they get injured and most often they die. Or if you get lost or something separated from your group somehow, because often they'll go at night. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to get separated. And then during the day when the sun is like 110 degrees and you're crossing the desert and you're out of food and you're out of water, it doesn't take long for somebody to to die in the desert. Mm -hmm. And the bodies just get left behind. And Occasionally um, border patrol goes through or sometimes human rights groups will go through and they will pick up the bodies and they will take them to whatever town is closest by um, and leave them with the coroner's office. But there are often so many people that they just toss them in mass graves. I mean, they literally put people in garbage bags and throw them in big holes in the ground. And then several universities, including Baylor, and I think it's University of Indianapolis is doing a lot of the excavation. They'll go down like once or twice a year and excavate the graves, and then we'll split up the bodies, and Texas State usually gets the most skeletonized remains. Mm. We get them in garbage bags sometimes. (sighs) So I think I want to
1: give a bit of context. Um, Not like I wouldn't be as shattered as I feel right now if I wasn't already in kind of a gentle state, (laughs) but uh, bear with me because I'm grieving someone right now. So I'm, I'm, I I don't know. I'm, I'm so horrified by this scene.
2: (laughs) It's, it's, it's pretty, you know, when, when they ask for volunteers, you know, when you're going through the osteology program, um, You know they don't. I and and it's no dig against my school, but maybe this is different for white students than it is for me because I am Mesoamerican. My grandfather was a was a political dissident. Mm. He was almost assassinated. He literally left Mexico in the middle of the night because there was an attempt made on his life because of his political activism. And so it was very hard for me to separate these people from. what what could have been the fate for my grandfather Mm -hmm. if he hadn't been able to escape and make his way over here and eventually send for my grandmother and you know the family so and these are indigenous and these are largely indigenous people these are the poor people in the rural areas who are kind of caught up between the cartel violence that is fueled by this demand for drugs in the U.S. and Canada and things are so bad for them that they cannot stay. They feel they cannot stay.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and then it's like, you know, um, I've also done volunteer work at some of the detention centers here in Texas. And we would go and talk to women, you know, who had been picked up by Border Patrol and were being held basically in prison mm-hmm. until they could go through their hearings um, where they're seeking asylum and they generally do not get it they get sent back, you know, and talk to them about what their experiences were and just kind of hold space for them. And these women talk about, you know, husbands being shot in front of them in the head. They talk about their, their young 11, 13-year-old sons being pressured to join gangs. They talk about, you know, daughters being raped or threatened to be raped. You know, like it's, it's literally un, untenable for people to stay where they are at, Mm -hmm. And sometimes they even send their children to the U.S. unaccompanied. so there was a way of unaccompanied minors coming through here in 2015, you know, um, that really caused problems for the Obama administration because there were all these children coming through. And uh, one of my friends talked to one young girl who was 10 who made the journey by herself from Guatemala. And this 10-year-old girl said she had been raped six times but that was still considered better odds than staying home oh. and facing certain deaths. So these are the situations that indigenous people are facing. And you know, I'd like to remind people that we have always had freedom of movement here in Turtle Island until colonization. You know, mm-hmm. there were definitely territorial, territorial areas for people, but we know that there were established trade routes from the southwestern part of the U.S., which you might consider Arizona and New Mexico now, all the way down to the tropical lowlands of Central America. There were trade routes and there were movements of people that, you know, were, were happening freely. People migrated back in those points in time. You have um, areas of of Teotihuacan near Mexico City, which was around 1000 AD, where you have migrant populations in their own neighborhoods from all over Mexico. Mm -hmm. So it's like migration has been part of what indigenous people have done since time immemorial. And it's only been in the last 100 to 150 years where our ability to move around freely has been impeded mm-hmm. you know and it's it's just things are just so bad in certain communities that they do not they 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 think it's better to send their 10-year-old children away by themselves than for those children to remain at home in place
1: so let's talk about what you brought up uh when it, so here you are <clears throat> an indigenous woman in academia uh in areas of anthropology archaeology so I have to imagine that many of the things that they're trying to teach you fly in the face <laughs> of your knowledge or your sense um you're just good sense, I would imagine yeah. so so how what are some of the the notions that you know a person like me, a white settler woman what What are some of the things that might be generally accepted by us in the areas of anthropology or archaeology that you would challenge as an indigenous woman? Or what are some of the challenges that, you know, examples of that when you're being taught in a Western perspective?
2: Well, one is the use of the word primitive. That comes up so often still. I mean, it's 2017 and I still sit in classes in anthropology and I still hear white professors refer to my ancestors as primitives.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: You know, um, I know in some places that are a little bit further along with with those decolonization conversations, that word is not used anymore. But in many places in the States, I can't speak for Canada, I can only speak for what I know is happening in the U.S., People still refer to Indigenous people as primitives, you know, like prior to colonization, which in some areas was only, you know, 150 years ago. California was only begun to be settled in the mid-1800s, you know. So, like, I still hear my ancestors referred to as primitives, Mm -hmm. which has no other connotation except for less than, Mm -hmm. They aren't referred to as traditional people, which would be more accurate, people Mm -hmm. who maintained their traditional way of living and tried to maintain it in the face of colonization. But there is this um, continued marginalization of indigenous people,
1: Mm -hmm. you know, because
2: they're not living as Europeans do or as any other old world people do. Mm -hmm. And um, this idea that indigenous cultures were static, they were like frozen in time. And that they were not involved you know evolving in dynamic societies and if you look at you know some of the people that were undergoing colonization early and i'm going to look at mesoamerica because those are my ancestors that is the history that i know best when people talk about 500 years of colonization that does not apply to all indigenous people it applies to certain groups of indigenous people especially those who encountered the spaniards early on so mm. we're talking about you know, Texas, Mexico, Central America, parts of the Caribbean. Those people experienced 500 years of colonization. Mm-hmm. South America. But people on the West Coast did, have not had 500 years of colonization. Many of them haven't even experienced three hundred years of colonization. Mm-hmm. So the fact that people like the Maya can have experienced five centuries of colonization and still have retained their culture and their identity says a lot about their resilience mm. and their and their like willingness to do everything they have to do to hold on and there was this like there's an idea among a lot of anthropologists that a lot of, of what we used to have was lost to colonization and i think there's this, we're coming to the realization now that that's not true that many things were syncretized mm. so they still survived but in an altered form but that's still surviving Mm -hmm. or they went underground, you know, and there's always this need of settlers to know what indigenous people are doing, to know everything about them. You know, it's like nothing can be sacred, nothing can be secret. Mm -hmm. Those teachings need to remain sacred and secret. Mm -hmm. Settlers don't need to know everything about an indigenous culture. Some things <laughs> need to remain within us and only shared with us and and by us.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, so
2: there's this idea that everything you know should be open source, and I'm just like, no, it shouldn't be because what happens when people know about some of our sacred rights? You know, mm. they cherry pick. They homogenize them. They take them out of context and they become part of, you know, new age peddlers who were going around teaching Lakota teachings or things like that when they aren't Lakota and they aren't part of that community. And they certainly have not been authorized to disseminate those teachings to outsiders. So Mm -hmm. um,
1: I'm I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because um, in the, intuition program that I teach, we, we talk about cultural appropriation in personal spiritual practices. And, you know, it's a discussion we don't have, I don't have answers exactly, but what I've sort of come away with is like, A, if you weren't gifted it by someone specific, don't use it. And B, you should always acknowledge who has given you the teaching. And if you don't know where a teaching comes from, or if the, if there's a practice you've heard of that you Like or admire, you should research your own ancestors and see what they would have done that might be similar. That's just kind of my rule of thumb. I'm I'm wondering what what you would want settlers to know. Most of the people listening to the podcast are, I would say, probably well-intentioned white ladies who don't know what they don't know. And you know, I'm just wondering if there's is there something different you would say to them or something additional.
2: I would totally agree with those guidelines that you have, Um, and I would. And I always emphasize for settlers that I do know where the appropriation comes from. I do understand that it is a deep need for connection to the earth and connection to spirit. But at the same time, my ancestors don't care about settlers. My ancestors are not here for settlers. They are here for me. (laughs) Our ancestors are here for us. We are the ones whose well-being they are concerned about, just like your ancestors are concerned about your well-being. And those are the people that you need to look to. And I think that one of the things that gets overlooked, not just in anthropology, but in decolonization studies in general, is that when Europeans came to Turtle Island, this was during the burning times. And I think it's been overlooked how significant that period of history was in Europe and how much trauma it did to people. Mm -hmm. This is multigenerational trauma that was occurring all over Europe. There's not any part of Europe that managed to escape the burning times. Mm -hmm. And the burning times were primarily directed towards women and um, older people. And women who had knowledge of herbs and midwifery and things like that, it was kind of dovetailing with the medicalization of birth and stuff like that. And I am not against allopathic medicine in the least. If I have a heart attack, I want to go to a hospital. (laughs) I don't want somebody to give me, you know, herbal medicine. (laughs) Um, So there's a time and a place for preventative and there's a time and a place for emergency allopathic care. So, um, but I think a lot of people overlook the deep trauma that the burning times inflicted on all European cultures and particularly on what's called pagan religions. And I kind of hate the term pagan religions because it kind of marginalizes them further. It kind of like says, Oh, there's pagan and there's Christian, Mm -hmm. but those indigenous belief systems of Europe were there for millennia, far longer than Christianity has been in place. Mm -hmm. And they had a, deeply rooted tradition that was alive and well in many parts of Europe through the 1500s. I was reading, um, I'm not really super fluent in reading Spanish, but I know a woman from Spain and she has books about the history of the witches in Asturias, which is one of the Mm -hmm. northern states of Spain and how those witches were just so rebellious towards the church. You know, and they were just such a burr in the Pope's behind. And this is kind of where the Inquisition came up, was to root out these vestiges of people who were still practicing indigenous religions, particular to their, to their cultures. And, you know, it primarily hit women because women were the knowledge keepers. Mm-hmm. You know, patriarchy um, has been one of the most toxic results of Christianity. And I know that there are good Christians. When I went to Europe this last summer, I made it a a priority to seek out those good Christians who were living by the word of Christ, as opposed to the hypocrisy that we see a lot here um, in the U.S. and Canada, where you say one thing and do another. But... um, I think people really need to look at their family histories and some of the, you know, like, I mean, the Irish seem to really be attuned to this more than anybody else that I know of who's of European lineage. Like I meet a lot of Irish people who just still retain a little bit of that indigenous, you know, connection to the earth, even though this is not their place of origin, they kind of don't know what to do with that connection since it's not rooted in this country mm. or this or this particular landmass. But, you know they they the irish acknowledge the other world
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know they do even if they only do it amongst other irish people
1: mm-hmm.
2: they acknowledge and, you know i've had boyfriends of irish descent and all of them are like yeah we 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 totally get that part about you know indigenous people mm-hmm. so but but you know the, the um irish for one of the last groups of people to be colonized by christianity in europe so they held on to those things a little bit longer mm-hmm. but i think that people need to look at those wounds that were inflicted upon them. And when I was in Europe, I began to have a better understanding of how much the burning times just decimated communities. Mm. When you read about, I mean, I actually went to a a museum dedicated to the inquisition Mm. and they had the instruments of torture and they told the stories about how these instruments were used and why they were used and the people they were used against. Mm -hmm. you know, and like single mothers in France and Germany, um, women who got pregnant for whatever reason and had a child out of wedlock often had a breast cut off. And it's like, so they disfigured her. They still allowed her to be able to feed her child, but it's like the woman carries the burden of, you know, having a child, whether it's Fornication, whether it's rape, whatever happened, she's the one who carries the penalty. It's like the burden is always placed on the woman
1: Mm -hmm. for
2: any type of of sin or temptation in Christian thought. And it's been, and we we still carry that. I mean, you you can see that in US politicians, where they're sitting here trying to legislate our rights Away from being able to have autonomy, autonomy over our own bodies, mm-hmm. because we simply are not fit to be able to make those decisions in their mind. And fetuses are more important than living women, you know. Or, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, like it's 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 this bizarre mindset that has not left us in five hundred years, and you know, this obsession with the devil and you know demons and witches occurred at the same time that Europeans were coming to Turtle Island. Mm -hmm. And they were encountering these people who were practicing earth-based religions. And to them, it was the devil. And you saw this happen in Mexico where um, the destruction of books written by the Maya and other Mesoamerican people where, you know, libraries were destroyed uh, Mm. of ancient thought because Mm. these were the works of the devil. What else could they be? Mm. You know, Mm. I mean, knowledge was associated with the devil. That's been true. Since Eve was in the garden, knowledge mm. and the devil are entwined. Mm. So let's keep people as ignorant as possible. So um, I think it's really important for Europe for people of European descent to uncover those things that have been passed down from generation to generation, especially when there's been a lot of deep-seated misogyny mm. in their families, which manifests itself in abuse against women, abuse against you know girl children. Mm-hmm. Um things like that and the disempowerment of women, because that also brought on the disempowerment of indigenous women as well. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there were a lot of societies where um who people call the Iroquois, um, mm-hmm. I believe is what they call themselves, where women were actually the 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 primary decision makers on on many matters related to the to the group or the tribe. But with colonization, they lost that power. Mm-hmm. And it disrupted their culture and it disrupted the way that decisions were made and who they were made and why certain people were in charge of making decisions.
0: Mm-hmm. So there was a
2: huge disruption of culture over here for women to lose the power over decision-making. But that's kind of been the Christian model that the, that the woman is subservient to her father and then her husband. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this whole model of subservience without question you know, which was not an indigenous model, (laughs) right? Right. but it's been forced upon us. So, um, but I think, you know, for, for people of European descent, I understand they're looking for something that they know is missing and it's very easy to reach out to the thing that is most accessible, but they have to look at whether or not that is the right thing to do because you cannot get spiritual healing off feeding off the culture and the oppression of other people. Mm-hmm. And everybody likes to think of their ancestors as being the good ones who didn't do anything bad. But nobody colonizes innocently. The moment mm-hmm. anybody, and this applies to new immigrants as well, the moment anybody steps on Turtle Island, they are directly benefiting from the displacement and the oppression of Indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Everybody, no matter where you're from. Yeah,
1: let's, yeah, let's, talk, let's talk, about talk about decolonization.
2: About decolonization. Mm-hmm. You went to decolonization (laughs) school. I did. I went to a summer school in Barcelona that was run by the University of California at Berkeley ethnic studies program. And um, they had, I think, like just over 90 students from all over the world who were in attendance. Um, A lot of them were Europeans. And there were a significant number of folks from South Africa. And there were four people from Canada, um, several people from the U.S. Most of them identified as Chicana, though, rather than indigenous, which I thought was interesting. And then we had a couple of people from New Zealand and a few women from Australia, including an an Aboriginal one from Australia. And... uh, It was really interesting because we had um, about 10 days of lecture and they were, you know, like about six hours of lecture each day. Mm. And it was just like this intensive crash course in what I thought was going to be decolonization and what actually turned out to be merely anti-colonial. What's the difference? The difference, uh, the difference, as manifested by this particular decolonization summer school that took place in Barcelona, is that um, the lecturers were primarily men, and at no point in time did we really talk about indigenous people. We had at least six people who identified as indigenous no at least ten people who identified as indigenous in the room, from various parts of you know the colonized. Australia, New Zealand, the U.S., and Canada. And I would also consider the people from South Africa to be Indigenous well. They were Black South Africans, but Indigenous from the New World. There were 10 of us. And Indigenous people and their issues were completely ignored. And I do not see how you can call yourself a decolonization school when you ignore the colonization of Indigenous people in the New World, especially when you are from the U.S. Mm-hmm. So there were two women lecturers, and the rest of them were men, and they ended up replicating a lot of the harms which they were critiquing about the academy.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So the lack of self-awareness among these primarily men, and then the um, just complete, igno- completely ignoring the history and the concerns and the uh, issues facing indigenous people. And the fact that they had 10 indigenous people out of a class of 90, which is pretty significant. I'm never sitting in a class of 10 indigenous people. Mm. Um, And 10 indigenous people from around the world. And never once did they ask any of us to talk about decolonization movements in our home countries.
0: Mm.
2: We were just completely ignored. I did learn a lot about South Africa, which I appreciate, but to frame decolonization as a black white binary is further erasing the issues of of of, um, indigenous sovereignty and indigenous Mm -hmm. colonization in those countries Mm -hmm. and i find it really yeah Yeah.
1: can you explain what decolonization
2: actually means there's a lot of people who have some very complex definitions of decolonization, but for me, in a nutshell, for the layperson, decolonization is the restoration of indigenous rights, indig- indigenous sovereignty, and land return. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So when people say they're decolonizing yoga, they're kind of missing the mark.
2: I think it's very hard for people who are not of Indian descent or, you know, or who don't practice the Hindu religion to be decolonizing yoga. I, I, as a person who is not from India, have ancestors from India or as a Hindu um, practitioner, I think I would have a hard time decolonizing yoga because it's not mine to decolonize. Um, Yoga is a spiritual practice. In the U.S., it's treated as a sport, mm. um, and that to me is incredible. I, have I practiced yoga? Yes. I do try and practice it with a spiritual intention for which it was developed, mm. which is how I understand it. It is a spiritual practice. It is not so I can have a tight butt um, <laughs> or you know sit next to Justin Trudeau in class if I'm lucky. Um, it is a spiritual practice and it is a serious spiritual practice. And I think if you're, if you're, if you're doing yoga in a gym, then you are not, you are not honoring yoga as the, as a spiritual practice. It is meant to be. Mm-hmm. So how can you decolon? I mean, and it's been commodified, you know, here in Austin, you can pay $12 a class and it's white people who are doing the classes and who were financially benefiting from it. So I'm. I'm really. I mean, unless you're offering free classes and you're incorporating the spiritual tenets around yoga, y- yogic practice, I don't know how non-Indian people are decolonizing it. Hmm. Hmm.
1: Can you share a little bit about your personal relationship with spirit and how you connect?
2: <laughs> um. Sure. Um. I. I actually practice one of my indigenous religions. Um, That was one of the reasons I became a Maya anthropologist initially was so I could learn how the ancestors practice and replicate those practices as close as I was able to. So um, I have two patron deities that I have a close relationship with. And I talk to them all the time and I make offerings and I make blood offerings and I observe sacred days and I make pilgrimages. To sacred sites when I am able to do so but that is a it is very much a a centerpiece in my life is this relationship that I have with the spirit world and I come from a lineage of women who had abilities Um, so I take that kind of thing very seriously because I know the things that my grandmother and my great-grandmother and some of my aunts went through to be able to practice um, their beliefs and, you know, to serve the community in the way that spirit appoints them to serve. Mm. So it's something that I take very seriously. And that's why I have such a huge problem when white people call themselves shamans Mm. or conduct classes that purport to teach indigenous practices or belief systems, because Mm. those types of things are, are appointed to you by spirit. Mm. And I honestly don't believe that the spirits of this land are going to be picking people who are not of this land to be disseminating these teachings. And I just hear a lot of weird stories from people about the teachers who, they, who they've who they had. And, you know, when I ask who the lineages are, nobody can, you know... Mm-hmm. Um, give that information. And I ask them who gave you permission to disseminate teachings of indigenous people. And, you know, sometimes they'll pop up with a name and I'm like, does the community know that you are offering these teachings for money? Because Mm. my grandmother and my great grandmother did not charge people for healing.
1: Mm.
2: And that healing came at a huge cost for them. Mm. There are a lot of things that people don't understand about shamanism, about witchcraft in that the person who has the ability to heal is also taking on a, a lot of spiritual things for the people who they work for, who they work with. Mm-hmm. And my great grandmother suffered a stroke at the age of 55. Mm-hmm. And everybody in the family is like, it's from the work she did. Mm-hmm. One of my aunts got cancer that would go in remission, come back, go on remission, come back. And she acknowledges it's from the work I was doing. Mm. you have to be able to clear yourself of the energy that you sometimes take on for other people otherwise it gets into you and that's Mm. you know something that you're constantly having to be concerned about is that the energy that you work with and take on is it affecting your family in some way is it kind of like seeping out into your own relationships and those dynamics and you know, my grandmother and my aunts taught me that you really have to be able to clean your own energy in order to be able to keep working for people. And you deal with a lot of dark energy, which lots of people don't want to think about, but it's mm-hmm. like, you know, I I I have had black magic aimed at me mm-hmm. more than once and it's very scary. And um, I have the tools to be able to combat it but a lot of people do not, but I actually, you know, I am, I employ my ancestors in one of the, you know, ways to protect myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't generally talk about specific practices with, with outsiders, mm-hmm. you know, um, when you have spirit guides, they should be, they should be impressing upon you discipline. Mm-hmm. And part of discipline is discretion. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, kind of give a lot of side eye to people who are wandering around, you know, having all these seminars where they are allegedly disseminating indigenous teachings for, you know, exorbitant amounts of money, because my grandmother helped people whether they could give her something for it or not.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. So, so, go ahead.
1: How do you, so it sounds like you're saying that people who are doing um, healing work, um, shouldn't be doing it professionally. Um, is that what you're saying?
2: Um, well, if you are doing it, then you are kind of, if, if, if you are doing it and people know you were doing it and they come to you, then you generally are acting as a professional, but you know, in indigenous societies, you weren't just a shaman. You weren't just a healer. Mm -hmm. You were also a farmer. You
0: Mm -hmm. were also,
2: um, you know, somebody who attended animals that that was not their full-time job because they weren't meant to be making money off of the healing work they were doing. So this was was something that spirit gave them gifts to do. And mm -hmm. it's kind of a double-edged sword. It's a burden and it's Mm -hmm. a gift at the same time, but you're not supposed to exploit people, especially people who are in need.
1: Mm -hmm. So what do you think of people doing like Reiki?
2: I have actually received Reiki attunements and I know Reiki works but I'm not comfortable with the way it's monetized. Hmm. I was lucky in that the woman who did my attunements did not believe in that model either. She made her her attunements affordable to people. Like like I know it's very common to charge hundreds of dollars for each attunement. Mm-hmm. Um, to move you up to the to the you know first and second level and then to the reiki master level this woman charged 75 dollars,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and i was okay with that because it was like her attunements lasted four hours mm-hmm. and she would only wow. take like i think six people so she spent four hours um you know doing the ritual necessary to pass on you know the Reiki energy from herself to the other people. We knew who her lineage was. Like um she said it's really important that people acknowledge the lineage of where their their abilities and their teachings have come from. So she gave us her lineage. Mm. So we would know how to be able to trace our own lineage, you know, along the Reiki hierarchy as Mm. if you will. But um, she did not believe that it. it should be monetized out of the reach of people, and she would even do a payment plan if you couldn't afford to give her the whole mm. seventy-five. And she was an incredibly dynamic and compassionate and wonderful person. And I really, you know, was amazed at her own energy that she projected. Mm. You know, I mean, like it took a little while for the Reiki attunement, I think, to really kind of integrate. And I think that's normal. Like for me, I didn't feel it really come out for a couple months. Mm-hmm. But I know when it came out, it came out like gangbusters. So
1: then I imagine you have a lot of thoughts on people who travel uh, to places or maybe don't travel, but people who are doing plant medicines and things like that. Because I, my understanding anyway is that that's also part of a Mesoamerican lineage. What are your thoughts there?
2: Um. I have a lot of thoughts about the non-indigenous use of our plant medicines. And I kind of feel like when it comes to things like peyote, which is a vulnerable species right now, which has been over harvested and possibly could face eradication in the wild during our lifetime. If, you know, some sort of guidelines are not put in place for the use of it. Um, I kind of feel like settlers should step back mm. from plants like that, that need to be regenerated. Um, they have a number of other tools at their disposal, which they could utilize. And I think if you don't really understand, um, you know, I mean, it. T- this gets kind of wrapped up in the Native American church, which I also have huge issues with because Native American church is based on, you know, um, the way that it's been, made possible for indigenous people to uh, practice peyoteism is to do it under the umbrella of the native american church mm-hmm. which has been imbued with christianity mm-hmm. um, jesus has nothing to do with peyote <laughs> i am not a christian i do not practice christianity and as a decolonizing indigenous person my ancestors religion is just fine i do not need the teachings of the colonizer to save my soul mm. um So I do not want God or Jesus in my peyote ceremony or any other indigenous medicine ceremony. Um, That is not how I communicate with the divine through those particular entities. Um, So we don't actually have religious freedom per se, because if we had religious freedom, we wouldn't have to do it under the auspices of the Native American church. Mm. We could do it freely, as we choose to, when we choose to, without having to go through these channels that settler governments have imposed upon us to be able to practice our religion. Mm -hmm. And my ancestors were some of the people who brought peyotism to other indigenous people. Mm -hmm. So I feel very precious about these things. Um, But I really kind of feel like given the status of peyote and I don't believe it's technically classified as endangered, but I did a presentation at the American Anthropological Association annual meeting back in November on peyote and ayahuasca, and I had some statistics from the Texas Department of Public Safety who oddly oversees peyote sales and, you know, how much is harvested and things like that. And the numbers are actually pretty scary when you look at how much peyotes, um, how many buttons were being harvested in the 1980s versus now and the size of the buttons has gone down significantly. Buttons the size of a dime are being harvested, which means those plants are not very mature and they're not being given given a chance to properly regenerate. Mm. You cannot continue to harvest these things without allowing allowing for proper regeneration, which can be anywhere from five to 15 years, depending on the plant. Mm. But the black market, which is feeding settler demand of peyote, is what is decimating the plant. It's not indigenous people, it's the black market that is uh, catering to settlers. Hmm.
1: And what about, what about ayahuasca then?
2: Ayahuasca is a real hot button issue because there's a lot of things around ayahuasca that have created even more oppression for indigenous people in the Amazonian region. Hmm. Um, I talked about this also in my presentation at the AAA um, that the number of indigenous shamans has been overshadowed by the number of Mestizo shamans who primarily cater to gringos, which are white people. Mm -hmm. Um, So these people generally are, you know, if, if you're not indigenous, you generally don't have a community to answer to. So if you're Mestizo, you know, you probably do have some, you know, like, Generally, a a Mestizo is a mixed blood person, which is very common in the U.S. and very common in Canada for Indigenous folks to be mixed blood. But with the prejudice against Indigenous people that is rampant in Central and South America, um, Mestizo people often consider themselves better than Indigenous people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's very complex the way colorism works down there. But... um, Mesiza people are often not attached to communities to whom they are answerable to. And so they tend to be the ones who cater to gringos. And it's debatable in many cases whether these people have been called by spirit to work with people and offer them medicine. And I used to do um, safe tripping workshops at festivals. (laughs) And every time I did these workshops, people would come up and talk to me. And invariably, I get asked by somebody who has worked with one of these chicken shamans, as I call them, <laughs> had a bad experience. I don't think this person knew what they were actually doing. And I was psychically damaged in that experience. And how can I heal from that? And I don't have an answer for them. Because hmm. that's never—that's a very difficult thing to heal from. Um, I, I have been in ayahuasca space myself. And I was fortunate in that the shaman that I worked with was definitely gifted, definitely doing the work of the spirits. And I waited a long time to work with a person like that. So I said no to other opportunities that came my way until this person came along. And I'm profoundly grateful that I waited for the right time and I had the right person. And it seemed like every time I needed him, he was magically there. (laughs) He was working with 25 people, which is way too big an ayahuasca circle. But the way that things get commodified, the people who organize these circles want to get the bang out of the buck. Mm-hmm. So they'll get as many people as they can fit into a facility, mm-hmm. and the fact that this man could take care of twenty-five people—that's like the Olympics of shamanism, I think. <laughs> um, but it really is asking too much of a shaman to be, you know, um, being entrusted with, with with the spiritual caretaking of so many people. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, but the potential for people being damaged in these ceremonies is high, and for years there have been reports of women being raped by chicken shamans um you know people uh there was that case um that occurred at uh Chimbrae, which i've known people who went to Shimbre and from day one i knew that place was going to be a problem um there was a young man from northern california who went down to peru he went to Shimbre which was once promoted by daniel pinchback and the Person who was running ceremonies. Well, I wouldn't say running ceremonies. They would administer ayahuasca, mm-hmm. and he would go back in his room and watch TV while people yeah. would do their while people would go through their experience alone. Whoa. He wasn't even making the brew; he was buying it from somebody. Mm-hmm. But this is what happens when people who don't have cultural literacy think that they know who shamans are and who is trustworthy and who is been charged by spirits to work with that particular medicine and to be your emissary in the spirit world. This mm-hmm. young man died. We don't really know how, because you know the Peruvian authorities did the inquest and it wasn't really well done. And um, he died and they buried his body under a bush and told his family that he left. <gasps> and it was a big scandal. And Ayahuascaro's right after that I had a really hard time coming into the U S and getting visas, including the man I worked with. Mm-hmm. But for years, year, I mean, like I knew Shinbrae was eventually going to be a bad scene and it was, mm-hmm. and people who have been there will not talk openly about the stuff that went on. Like I know three people who went to Shinbrae and I've talked to them privately about their experiences. And I'm just like, yeah, this was just, this guy was bad news. And Apparently he wasn't even an ayahuascaro. He actually worked with San Pedro, which is from a different region of South America. It's from it's an Andean medicine. Hmm. The Andes and the Amazon are not interchangeable. Hmm. <laughs> and when you work with, with a plant medicine, it takes years of working with that plant to even begin to hold ceremony for it. Hmm. Like you have a responsibility to get to know that plant intimately and then to not take care of people after you dose them, mm-hmm. leave them alone to struggle with that experience, is, it's, it's horrible. That, mm. that that man's a brujo. He mm. is, is, is that, 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 that's, that's, that's a, the word we call bad witches, brujos, brujas. Mm. You know, I mean, I, I was just appalled when I read the details around the case because that young man went there for healing and instead he died, <laughs> alone. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. In in that space, which I feel like I'm very comfortable with the other world. I've been in the underworld many times. I have protector spirits who are with me. Mm -hmm. And I still don't necessarily, I I don't think I would ever navigate ayahuasca by myself, Mm -hmm. as comfortable as I am in the underworld. But for that young man to die by himself, Mm -hmm. far away from everybody he loved, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: without anybody to guide him, That was not a good death. Yeah. And it bothers me. Yeah. That that he went through that. And he's not the only one. There have been women who whom I know of who have been victimized by people. And for a woman to experience or anyone to experience that kind of violation in that space, I can't imagine the blackness that is inserted Mm -hmm. into their souls from such. I mean it's 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 a, it's a it's a horrible violation to happen in any state of consciousness, mm-hmm. but that one in particular. Mm-hmm. I mean it's but people don't know what they're getting involved in and this yeah. is what happens and there's this commodified industry and indigenous people in Peru are losing land because foreigners go down there, they want to open up a retreat and mm-hmm. they buy up land that takes it out of Indigenous hands.
1: Mm-hmm hmm
2: So, okay, so this conversation
1: has brought up all the feelings, and I have to ask you, Juliana, living as an Indigenous woman and navigating spiritual spaces and spaces of trauma and um, trying to even make space to talk about decolonization in a way that doesn't re-traumatize. I mean, A, it must be exhausting, but also I'm curious, how do you cope with grief and rage?
2: Uh, When I was living in San Francisco, it was a little bit easier for me to access the tools that I needed because, For all of its faults and for all of the cultural appropriation, San Francisco is a place of, you know, um, uh, conflict and it's a place of juxtaposition where beautiful things and horrible things happen at the same time and, you know, it's kind of like living on the edge of the crack of the earth. In San Francisco, all those fault lines, you know, it attracts so many crazy and creative people <laughs> for a reason. I think they're attracted to that energy that's seeping out of those cracks in the earth. Um, but at the same time, there was this like there was so much access to healing in that place, and I feel profoundly grateful that I had ten years to be able to access a lot of things that have helped me spiritually and one of them was drugs.
1: Hmm.
2: <laughs> I mean, I, I have to be honest that I, I was pretty deeply embedded in the psychedelic community mm-hmm. when I was living in San Francisco. Um, you know, I was uh, friends with the Shulgans, Alexander and Anne Shulgin, and I knew the people who run Arrowhead, which I don't is- know
1: what these things are. I smoked
2: pot once when I was 18. <laughs> <laughs> so um, if you've ever heard of MDMA- which is uh-huh. nice to see. Um, The person who resynthesized it and kind of put it back out there in the world was Alexander S- Sasha Shulgin. He was a chemist with Dow at one point in time and became interested in entheogens. and he developed a whole. Um, library of entheogens that are that are um he he talks about how he created these chemicals and how he and his friends tested them and found out safe dosages and they documented what these experiences were like so other people could you know follow their the little maps of exploring the you know realms of consciousness in these books called tekal and pikal which is tryptamines i have known and loved and phenethylamines i have known and loved and so Sasha and his wife Anne, who was once a lay therapist who did therapy with, with people using MDMA and a, another chemical called 2CB, um, they were kind of the pioneers of, you know, I I consider Sasha the greatest alchemist the world has ever known, mm. and I do not say that lightly, and I do not say it flippantly. He was the greatest alchemist the world has ever known, and Anne Shulgin to me was an embodiment of the greek goddess persephone the queen Mm. of the underworld she was the ultimate psychopomp Mm. and i have told sasha that he saved my life Mm. the access that i had to the chemicals he created allowed me to do a lot of inner work and i think that without those i might not be alive today. But where I live now, that stuff is not so easily accessible. There's a lot of ignorance around drugs and what people are taking. There's a lot of research chemicals that are out there that are not what people think they are. And frequently overdose or die from things that are not what they believe that they were when they took them. Mm -hmm. And here I don't feel safe, not only because... I don't know what I'm getting, but also because Texas, um, you know, there's not a culture here that really supports drug use like there is in the Bay area or the West coast. Mm. So I haven't engaged in as much of that as I would like to, or I think would be helpful for me to feel a little more integrated. Mm. And, you know, being in academia has been kind of hard too, because if you're going to trip, you know, for like, six or eight hours you need a day to recover from that right and i haven't really had the luxury of time to spend mm. two days you know um dropping in and tuning out and recovering mm. so it's been kind of challenging trying to you know perform self-care in a place that is far less conscious and far less decolonized than the west coast was and the west coast is not that decolonized but something is better than nothing Mm -hmm. there was at least the acknowledgement that you know racism existed we're here in texas you know there's a lot of white nationalists just running around Mm -hmm. randomly here i i see people with confederate flags in the back of their vehicle all the time which Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean anything because one of my friends on facebook an indigenous woman up in british columbia just got hammered by all kinds of racists on her timeline last night. Just the most egregious things that people were didn't even know her were coming onto her timeline and calling her vicious names because she made a comment about the oil sands fire the oil sands fire up in Alberta, I believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um You know, so racism is everywhere, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but Canadians have this uh, image that they like to foster being friendly and nice. I lived in Canada, so I know the reality of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But, um, you know, I mean, I don't think a day goes by where I don't experience at least one microaggression Mm -hmm. as an Indigenous person, Mm -hmm. whether it's in the classroom, whether it's, you know, in mainstream culture whether it's in other social justice spaces, Mm -hmm. because here in the U S social justice spaces often overlook or ignore indigenous people. We're not Mm. part of that conversation.
1: Right. Like, so like black lives matter kind of thing.
2: Yes. And I support black lives matter and they do matter. But what, what is problematic is this binary of black, white Mm -hmm. relations that completely erases indigenous people. Mm that is really problematic, and I don't feel like Indigenous people are being supported by other non-Native people of color, you know. Mm. Um, Mm. So it's kind of like, you know, many times our issues get co-opted by other minority groups, which has happened before, you know, with the Redskins debacle. um, Uh, there were there was a black activist and an Asian American activist who kind of co-opted the Redskins uh, conversation. And I'm like, how do you take away the conversation from Indigenous people when it comes to the Redskins? Mm. But but they did it, and neither of them would apologize for it. So mm. you know, there's this um, we are kind of treated like you know I I kind of feel like in the U.S. we're inconvenient for everybody. The fact that we're still here is a huge inconvenience for everybody because then people have to look at how they benefit from our oppression and displacement. Mm -hmm. Everybody does, Mm -hmm. you know, and nobody wants to take any sort of responsibility for that or even for their lack of, of um, solidarity for us. Mm. I mean, I was really happy to see, you know, some non-native people of color at Standing Rock. That was very heartening, but you know, it's just not there in the social justice spaces. I continually have to fight for any sort of visibility for indigenous issues. Like this happened at the, at the uh, international drug policy conference in 2015, where the only indigenous people that anybody wanted to talk about were the ones who were offering up medicine. Mm-hmm. They didn't talk about the, you know, the, the issues that we have with addiction you know, that lead to suicide, they don't talk about our fractured communities, but everybody else has got a place at the table. Mm. And I had to literally disrupt that, that conference in order for anybody to start talking about indigenous people. Mm. And I know now that that was just a way, you know, when the Drug Policy Alliance decided to kind of like center what I was saying, it was just a way to neutralize me. Because if I, (laughs) If they neutralized me, then I wouldn't continue to critique them. Mm -hmm. So it's very problematic in that, you know, when settlers do finally start talking about indigenous issues, they will often only want to center the voices of indigenous people who are not going to challenge them too much, who are going to make them feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And if you are one of those indigenous people that is unapologetic and is not going to be tokenized and is not going to be you know, marginalized, when you are demanding respect and sovereignty, that makes people very uncomfortable. And I'm seeing it in the festival community. Mm. And I see it in the social justice communities where solidarity for Indigenous people is absent. No matter what people say, they are not going to deal with Indigenous people if you were going to ask them to step out of their comfort zones. Mm. Now, I can't speak to Canada because Canada is a different place entirely. And <laughs> Indigenous people are not invisibilized like they are here in the U.S. Mm. So I would not want to speak over my relatives up north, but this is how it is in the U.S. And Mm. I do keep up with what's going on with Indigenous issues because I used to live in Canada. My first husband was French-Canadian. He was a Mohawk ally. He hated Pierre Trudeau. Um, <laughs> and so when Justin came up, I was like, oh my God, that's the son of the white paper dude. <laughs> yes. And people were just like, oh, but he's so cute. He does yoga. And I'm just like, that must be the Obama effect.
0: As long as the yeah.
2: oppressor is you know, funny, and cute, and witty, and makes you laugh, it's okay. Mm. So it's like a kinder, gentler oppression is palatable to people. Mm. Um, But to me, it's kind of horrifying, because I know he ran on a platform of, oh, I'm going to address all these issues, like the boil water reserves, not having, you know, proper drinking water, and all these other things that are just afflicting indigenous communities because of genocide. And my understanding is crickets in that regard.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Specifically, um, almost a hundred reserves still under boil water uh, advisory. So yeah. Uh, Well, I want to say, Juliana, that um, I'm frequently uncomfortable uh, when I'm (laughs) learning learning stuff from you. you. (laughs) I I feel like of all the people I've learned from uh, in the past couple of years the past 18 months I would say you have given me the the language the resources the understanding the information you as one person have just completely changed not just the conversation but the worldview the outlook the and the the way of proceeding uh, in, in our house with my husband Ruben and I um, it It's very uncomfortable to be (laughs) challenged. And also it's like oxygen because I trust you, you know? So, um, I, I really thank you for persevering in the face of the aggressions, micro and macro. And, um, I, I've learned to really love being challenged and uncomfortable, uh, with the information you present me. So thank you so much for sharing on the show today. Thanks for agreeing to come on.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I like to look at it as decolonization is not just about liberating indigenous people. It is about liberating everybody. Mm. Settlers need to be liberated from the karmic actions of their ancestors. You know, Mm -hmm. the only way for anyone to be free of that is to confront it Mm -hmm. and with it. You know we don't have to be the people our ancestors were mm-hmm. we can be better than that and you know it's work we can all do together it doesn't have to be people doing it by themselves it's like you know i'm invested in your liberation as i hope you are invested in mine i love that some kind of awesome music has come on just as you said we're all gonna
1: go get liberated together that's awesome thanks for being on the show <laughs>
2: all right sweetie thank you so much <laughs>
1: Well, first, I want to apologize for some of the strange uh, echoing. Uh, I, I really appreciate all the people who just pushed through the distraction um, because I think the conversation was really worth it. Uh, I don't know about you, but I feel like I am swimming in emotion and ideas and thoughts. And so uh, I need some help processing. So I would like to welcome back to the show uh, Love of My Life, Yin to My Yang. That actually is true. <laughs> <laughs> Ruben Anderson for another Rubination. Welcome back.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on this conversation? We, we, this is a lot of what happens in our house is Juliana will post something and then we have to
0: debrief for weeks <laughs> we and weeks. Process. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, Carmen, you know how you've uh, hinted? in air quotes, that I sometimes do go on too long in the ruminations.
1: Yeah, I don't want it to be about you. I want okay. it to be about our thoughts on the guests. So right. so Center I, Juliana in I, this Well, I, I'm
0: just, I am, like, I'm speechless, mm. really. Like, I feel kind of, like, dizzy. Mm-hmm. There's sort of, yeah, like a feeling of vertigo.
1: I was... I needed to kind of buy time in the beginning of this interview to deal with what she was telling me about the mass graves in the desert, which is why I was like, "Okay, let redirect." Please explain <laughs> archaeology and forensics and all of that, because I I really did just need to. I, my brain couldn't take that in. Mm-hmm. I was I I still feel re-listening to the episode. You know, as I've done a couple times editing, I, I it still makes me cry.
0: Mm-hmm. It's absolutely horrifying. I've <laughs> Uh, I've seen some of that on her Facebook and I've I think discussed some of that in Facebook messages with her So I kind of had an understanding of of what it is she did mm. um, But it, it's it's horrifying and when you think about it from the uh, Trauma perspective I Well, I, I guess I, I don't know I'm kind of writing about this myself uh, or I'm I'm trying to write about this myself for a different project I feel like the people of Europe, in big quotation marks, are dealing with a trauma of a different age, mm-hmm. generally. Than, like a historical uh, trauma
1: that's fairly distant.
0: Yeah, that's fairly mm-hmm. distant. So, you know, if if paganism was largely destroyed a thousand years ago, or you were cleared off of your ancestral lands largely two or three centuries ago, or whatever, uh, the trauma is in our bones, and it's definitely in settler culture in North America, like it's the it's, the it's framework built it. yeah. of settler culture. Yeah. Um But we can walk out our door today and see these losses happening to Indigenous people. Like yes. we can see it in front of us. Mm-hmm. So they are experiencing this in real time. Mm-hmm. So when Juliana talks about her people being thrown in mass graves like i don't you know yeah it, it's yeah
1: how does she do it i don't well, get it
0: you know it, it was it was so fascinating and of course kind of shocking because she was like and so i do drugs right <laughs> yes. uh, which yeah, yeah so you know uh, i also i smoked pot twice in 1988 like uh, <laughs> we love our cocktails but we're not uh, we're
1: not entheogenic folks not really yeah
0: (laughs) not in this household right yeah um so but it also makes a ton of sense when she talks about her relationship with her spirituality and her um her cultural use of plant medicines and whatnot Mm -hmm. that you know in our culture drugs are a bad thing used by satan and in her culture drugs are not Mm -hmm. and so she has this whole other toolbox to go to with a whole different worldview Mm -hmm. and framework that comes with it. Mm -hmm. So that's just, it's fascinating. It's not,
1: I was uh, very interested to hear, um, her perspective as an indigenous woman talking about the inquisition and the Mm -hmm. trauma that we carry from that, because Mm I, I recognize that with clients in my office and I I bring that up with them a lot. And, Mm -hmm. and we do a lot of work on that when I'm doing retreats and quests and things like that. Um, but it was quite nice to hear it affirmed mm-hmm. by somebody from outside that, um, that heredity, you know, it was, mm-hmm. it was, that was nice. And I particularly appreciated, uh, hearing her talk about cultural appropriation in spiritual practices. Cause you know, again, I talk about this with my well-intentioned white ladies mm-hmm. and a lot of my clients, but you know, hearing an indigenous woman say, yeah, no, that's not cool. Mm-hmm. I think is very important. Mm-hmm. and, and, all that the, the, the key phrase, my takeaway here, is when she said, You cannot get spiritual healing from the oppression of others.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And see. Like yeah. that that's all there is to yeah. say about that. Yeah. yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I I will say for anybody who tries to follow Juliana on Facebook or something, that she it's not for the weak apart, and she is mm-hmm. a badass, but she mm-hmm. is also just unrelentingly and this is um something that i i have said many times when i'm uh, talking with other white folks about cultural appropriation is that so many people of color that i have communicated with are extremely interested in white people reclaiming their own cultures Mm -hmm. you know they they don't they're as horrified by this kind of like uh, faceless industrial capitalism as we are, they just don't want us to respond to it by going and taking their culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they want us to respond to it by going back and trying to, to find and rebuild our own cultures. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she, she talked about the, yeah, the mutual liberation, mm-hmm. you know, the liberation for me is bound up in liberation of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really, I've heard the integrity that she possesses on that that she brings to that kind of quest is uh,
1: well it's it's unusual it's rare it's noteworthy and Mm -hmm. it's it's very um enlivening for me Mm -hmm. it kind of helps me recommit
0: Uh yeah yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) so uh thanks for your thoughts Ruben um I can't find my sheet with my list so name of a country in Mesoamerica or a place or region that we should call out to
0: uh I'm gonna say the very southern part of Mexico.
1: Where what what is that? <laughs> we have to look it up. But she also mentioned places like um specific places like Chiapas. Mm-hmm. It's like, hmm, I'm 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 gonna have to do a little bit more Googling and research about these these places. Anyway, mm-hmm. I know I that I have listeners in Mexico. I've seen that on the list. I might have shouted out to them already, but mm-hmm. I'd like to uh say thank you to everyone of Mesoamerican uh descent who's listening today. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, this podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School. That uh, registration is going to be opening in June, and then in July, Ruben and I will be adding all the special touches to the mm. textbook. and
0: making books.
1: Hand-making books that get sent out. Uh, so if you'd like to be notified when registration reopens for the Numinous School in June, just hop onto my website and sign up for my newsletter while you're there you might like to read a bit about the wilderness quests we are prepping right now to lead the first one in may and there's another one happening in august if you'd like to spend 12 days in the mountains doing ritual and ceremony you can get all the details at CarmenSpaniola.com. c-a-r-m-e-n-s-p-a-g-n-o-l-a until next time take care